Well, hey, uh, again, it's good to see you this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 14. If you were with us last week, I was very ambitious and hoping to preach a longer portion of Scripture, and we made it through one chapter. So, again, I'm very ambitious, but I'm going to try a little harder. Um, I gave my wife some encouragement that uh, every once in a while I'll just keep going like this to keep me moving. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Uh, I remember when I was a boy and it was usually this time of year, I would, uh, spend a week with my grandparents and, you know, it's not like we did anything too super exciting in the sense of it wasn't like every day there was something on the schedule. It was just to be with them for the week. Uh, my grandfather at the time wasn't driving and my grandmother never knew how to drive. So we were home a lot and, uh, we were, you know, just kind of spending time together and their routine was very regimented every morning. Um, after breakfast, the TV would go on the networks and, you know, all the game shows in the morning and that they would play like card shark and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we would go from the, the morning prices, right. And all the morning, uh, game shows. And then we would have lunch. And then right after lunch, and, and remember, I'm like six, seven, eight, nine years old. Um, like clockwork, I would hear this. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. So I wasn't going to play the whole thing for you, um, but some of you exactly know what I mean. Uh, some of you are thinking, what was that? Um... I don't even know if it's on anymore, uh, but okay. <laughs> so someone that has convalesced for the last few months knows that uh, Days of Our Lives is like, still on at a soap opera. Um, and I, I was thinking about that this week as I was looking through this season of David's life because, it, man, it really seems like his life is a soap opera. There's a lot of drama surrounding this man. There's a lot of intrigue. There's a lot of um, dynamic dynamics in the relationships that he has within his family, within those that are close to him. And it's all playing out here in these chapters. I mean, it has been all throughout his story, but very specifically, when I was kind of summarizing chapters 13 through 18 and now 14 through 18, it's just this picture that there's so much going on. And what I did for you last week, and we did it again this week, is you have a bulletin insert with a list of the people that are mentioned in this passage, because uh, we're going to kind of go quickly through it. I'm, I'm intentionally not going to read a lot out of the passages this week. And I know that sounds counterintuitive coming to a Bible church where you think we're going to teach the scriptures. Well, we're going to teach the scriptures, but I'm going to encourage you to go back and read these chapters at a slower pace. Uh, what I want to do is I want to summarize the story for you and what's going on in David's life. Uh, and, and I want to draw some applications for you because in the midst of this soap opera kind of experience that David is having, I think there's a lot for us to learn. Chuck Swindoll wrote about this during this season of David's life. He says that grace means that God in forgiving you does not kill you. Grace means that God, in forgiving you, gives you the strength to endure the consequences. Grace frees us so that we can obey our Lord. It does not mean sin's consequences are automatically removed. If I sin and in the process of sinning break my arm, when I find forgiveness from sin, I still have to deal with a broken arm. And so I think that's very true as we look at this passage. David committed a tragic sin by sleeping with Bathsheba and murdering her husband Uriah. And David was judged. When Nathan the prophet came to him and, and confronted him, David acknowledged his sin. And part of the consequences of that sin was that his, the son that was going to be born was to die. And then that God also said that part of the consequences is that the sword would not be removed from his house. 
And one of the consequences of the sin was that David, David's wives would be treated uh, to other men in a public way. It's all going to come true in these chapters. David confessed his sin then and acknowledged it, but he bore the consequences of it. And maybe for some of you this morning, you understand what that means. You know that the cross has given you forgiveness and freedom, but you also understand that the choices that you've made in life bear consequences. And there might be scars in your life that you can look at and say, oh, I remember that season and that time. And I want to encourage you that uh, in those moments, if you have found freedom in the cross, rest in the freedom that God gives you. And maybe those scars are reminders of his grace. But when David sowed to the flesh, he reaped what the flesh produced. He reaped the consequences of his actions. Confession and forgiveness in no way stops the harvest of what we reap in life. What we sow in life, we will reap. And that's what Paul says in Galatians 6, 7. Remember, God's not going to be mocked. What we sow, we reap. And there are no exceptions in that. And so let's look at chapter 14. And just as a reminder, chapter 13 was that strangely terrible chapter of one of David's sons, Amnon, desiring to sleep with his half-sister, Tamar. And in that desire, um, he finally um, has a plan And he rapes her. And when he raped her and sent her away in anger, he was angry with himself, shut the door. Her brother, blood brother, Absalom, steps in, takes her under his care, and over a few years is plotting his next move to get revenge. And chapter 13 ended with Absalom concocting this plan to get his brothers with him. And one of his servants murders Amnon. And so now David has a son who died in disgrace and another son who murdered his brother. And Absalom goes away into the the hill country, right? He leaves town. Because he's not sure what kind of reception he's going to get. So he goes to Geshur, as verse 38 indicates, and he's there three years. So this is five years after the incident. And that brings us to chapter 14. Absalom is living far away for three years. And we read that Joab, and Joab, if you look at your handy dandy people of 2 Samuel list, Joab is known for his military valor. He's one of David's generals. And we also know that Joab, in being a commander-in-chief, is also a nephew by David's half-sister, Zeruiah. So he approaches David and he says, David, I think it's going to be politically better for you to bring your son home. But what what he does in this plan... Because he's perceiving the king's heart was inclined towards Absalom. Remember, David is a man of great passion, of great love. Uh, Joab just doesn't immediately approach David, but he goes to a woman, and, and the scriptures call her a wise woman. I don't know how she was really known as a wise woman, um, because Joab gives her the script and says, this is what I want you to say. I want you to go to David. These are the words that I want you to say. So this woman from Tekoa goes to David and comes up with this story. And I'm not going to go into all the details of the story, but it's basically the, the, the reason why he does this is the story is the picture of what Absalom did in murdering his brother to protect his sister. And now he's estranged. And now the king has to decide what he's going to do because the king was the one that had to figure these things out. And Joab is thinking the nation's watching you, David. They're watching how you respond. And so even though Absalom is a murderer, David had a great love for his son 
And so in verse 11, we read the wise woman urged David to remember the Lord as God, specifically his mercy. So in this script that is given, Joab is kind of like, you know, laying it on pretty heavy for David to, to kind of get him. And, 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 and David is surrounded by these people that are trying to move him according to their own desires and what they would want. And, and so he pleads to David's case for God's mercy. Please let the king remember the Lord your God so that the avenger of blood will not continue to destroy. Otherwise, they will destroy my son. And he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall on the ground. That's referring to the story. And then the, the, the tables turn. Then the woman said, please let your maidservant speak a word to my Lord, the king. And he said, speak, verse 12. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in speaking this word, the king is as one who is guilty and that the king does not bring back his banished one. So the story is given and she turns the table and she's like, okay, you just gave a judgment there. But why didn't you do that for your own son? Now, David had personally experienced God's mercy and escaped death for his adultery and his murder. And so the woman appealed to David to deal with Absalom as God had dealt with him. And if not, the nation would suffer. Then we read in verse 14. Well, let me read verse 13 with it. Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in speaking this word, the king is as one who is guilty and that the king does not bring back his banished one. For we will surely die and are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. Isn't there a lot of truth in that verse? Oh, there's a ton of truth in verse 14. Let me read that last part for you again. God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. Church, that's the message of the cross. That God plans ways to bring banished people to him. We are separated from God due to our sin. And yet in God's mercy, he delights in providing a way for us to come home. And so we see this woman from Tekoa kind of challenges David. I don't know how she was feeling. You get the indication in the text. There's a certain sense of trepidation in what she is saying. Because as David is hearing these words, and as the story goes forward... We know that the light bulb goes off and David's like, did Joab send you? Whether or not Joab was like whispering in his ear every once in a while and say, hey, remember Absalom? Remember that son? What are you doing with him, David? And now this woman comes and with the story and turns the table and his light goes off. And so we know that Joab wanted David to pardon Absalom. He sensed that the woman's arguments had come from him in verses 18 and 19. Then the king answered and said to the woman, please do not hide anything from me that I am about to ask you. And the woman said, let my lord, the king, please speak. So the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? He knows. Joab wrote the script and she performed it for the king masterfully. And so in verses 21 through 33 of chapter 14, the masquerade proved effective. David agreed to allow Absalom to return to Jerusalem in verse 21. However, even though he did not execute him, David did not restore his son. And that's going to be a problem. So when you read the rest of the chapter, Absalom is allowed to return home. And what I find interesting about David is he loves his son, but Absalom is allowed to return home. And David basically does nothing with him. He kind of just says, okay, you can move back home, but he turns his face from him. They're not able to have fellowship. They're not restored to each other. David's forgiveness was official, but it wasn't personal. 
Now, verses 25 through 27 say this about Absalom, and this is important because this is going to carry us through the rest of the story. Now, in all Israel was no one as handsome as Absalom, so highly praised from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. There was no defect in him. When he cut the hair of his head, and it was at the end of every year that he cut it, for it was heavy on him, so he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels by the king's weight. To Absalom, there there were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. So what we know about Absalom is that his outward appearance drew people in. And, And doesn't that imagery play into the David story, right? Man looks at the outward appearance, but where does God look? He looks at the heart. And what's going to happen in this contrast between father and son is that you have a son from the outward appearance appears very handsome. In fact, his handsomeness was declared through the length of his hair. I'm glad my wife finds me attractive. (laughs) You know what I was saying there, so. But hey, um, culture said at that time that a strong growth of hair was a sign of great manly power. Absalom was attractive physically, but not correspondingly attractive to God. Spiritually, he was not pleasing to God. He put his own ambitions ahead of God's plans. In many ways, he's following the pattern of Saul, the king that came before David. Now, verse 27 indicates that Absalom has three sons, but by the time you get to chapter 18... The text indicates that Absalom had no sons, so it's possible they died in uh, early childhood years. We do know that for the next two years of Absalom's life living in Jerusalem, he was living in the shadow of his dad, but they had no relationship. And it was during these years that he began to resent his father more and more. When Absalom pressed for a personal re- reconciliation with his father, we read at the end of the chapter, and this is just a, a sign of who he is, he, he basically wants Joab to mediate because Joab stood up for him before, and Joab's like, okay, you're here now, but I don't want anything more, so what does Absalom do? Well, he burns Joab's father to get Joab involved, and he's like, hey, I need to talk to my dad. And so Joab goes before David. Verse 33, so when Joab came to the king and told him, he called for Absalom. Thus he came to the king and prostrated himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. Now, David made a big blunder. He, he messed up in the way that he handled this issue with his son. He did not forgive his son in the same way that God forgave him. He brought him back home. But he did not bring him into relationship with himself. And this entire chapter sets the stage of a father who is a king caught between his responsibilities as king to be both just and merciful and being a dad. The chapter deals with how to discipline. David's solution was to compromise. He brought him home, but he didn't execute him. He brought him home but he didn't restore him. He allowed him to return to Jerusalem, but he had no fellowship with him. He made compromises along the way. God's solution is to be merciful and to forgive, to welcome back warmly and quickly. If anyone has ever sinned against you and you've been able to enjoy the restoration that God provides through reconciliation that comes from forgiveness. And can I say that as an important part of it? You can't have reconciliation without forgiveness. That when there is forgiveness and you're restored, no matter what the offense is, 
There can be peace in that relationship. David and Absalom didn't have that. And so as we move into chapters 15 through 18, Absalom now is stewing, venting, like ruminating on all of this pent up frustration that he has with his dad, the king. And he puts a plan into action. Basically, the first part of chapter 15 is Absalom plotting to take his dad's throne. He is gathering people. He, being this handsome person, is putting himself out in the public as a judge, as uh, the very first few verses of chapter 15 indicate, basically wanting to help decide things for the people in Israel, basically posturing himself away from his father saying, you know, the king's too busy. Let me help you out. And the people loved his counsel and advice, and he grew a following. Not only that, he was building up a military uh, around him of people that would be faithful and loyal to him. And so the first six verses explain how Absalom undermined the popular confidence in the Lord's anointed. And this went on for four years. Like Absalom is all about the long play in his life. He doesn't rush to anything. Right? For two years, he plotted his brother's murder. For three years, he was in exile. He's brought home for another set of time. He is separated from his father. And now, for four years, he is just kind of stewing on, okay, how am I going to get what I want? Absalom is a very self-centered person. Some indications of this are he promoted himself. He secured military weapons and strategy. He gave himself a royal, a royal aura, like, you know, that, that kind of the trappings of, okay, I belong, I've arrived. He prepared for a revolution against his father. He criticized his father's administration publicly. He promised to rule better than David. He used personal charm and flattery to gain support. And he exalted himself over David, as verse 6 indicates. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. He wants the prestige. He has watched too long his dad disregard him. And we talked about this with David's life. Having many wives and concubines and all the children that go on with it that were scattered all around him. His family was not at peace. And here you have a son feeling left out, underappreciated, unloved by his dad. And he puts a plan into action. One commentator wrote, David was a hero. Absalom was only a celebrity. It took four years for this plan to to hatch. We read in verse 12 that as things are coming together for Absalom, he needs a critical person to help him. Verse 12 indicates that he sends for Ahithophel. Ahithophel was one of David's counselors. So now he poaches someone from David's inner circle. And if you remember, and it's on your sheet here, Ahithophel is one of these wise counselors that is very likely Bathsheba's grandfather. Oh, who's Bathsheba? Oh, right. The woman that David committed the great sin against. So it's interesting that Ahithophel is probably at arm's length in the king's court waiting to to kind of stick it to the king for what he did. And so he's brought over to Absalom's side. His name, Ahithophel, means brother of folly. And that will live out to be true in his life. And so in verses 13 through 17, or 37 really, um, what happens is Absalom is posturing himself, gaining support, 
And we read, Then a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee. David's response is to run from his son. David doesn't say, All right, get the battalions ready. We're going to war. Why? Because in his own mind and heart, David knows that he's really no different than Absalom. In fact, he's worse off. He committed adultery and murder. And he's struggling with that feeling of, I hate what my son's doing, but I understand what my son's doing. So what does he do? He runs off. But I also think, and this is apparent in the text, when you look at it, David's fleeing from Absalom and not engaging him in battle is David trusting in God's promises of the covenant promises that God made to David earlier on in 2 Samuel when he said, through you, David, I will establish your throne forever. David believed God's promises and ran not to run away like, oh no, I'm going to lose my throne, but to run away to figure out, okay, what's the next step? Because I trust that God's going to restore me. He knew that he was God's anointed. And he was restored with his relationship with the Lord. And so he's making plans and he goes to flee and his servants all come to him and they're saying, hey, we're going to go with you wherever you go. And so basically David prepares his house and he keeps 10 of his concubines behind to stay at the house to kind of keep it running and to keep everything going because he assumes he's going to be returning at some point. So he leaves them behind, but he also brings with him in verse 18, all of these servants that passed by the Cherethites, the Pelethites, the Gittites, 600 men who came with him from where? Gath. From Philistine. And so like you have all these people that are loyal to David that aren't from Israel, but they're loyal to him. Because he's been loyal to them. They were a part of his mercenary crew when he was running from Saul. And they stayed faithful. And so they all get together and they go off. And what's interesting at the end of chapter 15, as you kind of walk through it in this uprising, is that when David prepares to leave and he leaves people behind, we read that several people pledge their faithfulness to David. One of them is Ittai, the Gittite. He comes to David and he pledges his faithfulness. Zadok and Abiathar, they're the high priests in Israel. They pledge their help. And as David leaves, we read as he's leaving Jerusalem in verse 30. He ascends up the Mount of Olives and wept as he went. And his head was covered and he walked barefoot. Then all the people who were with him, each covered his head, went up weeping as they went. Now someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. So in this time of, of somewhat uncertainty and, and disappointment and frustration, David finds himself in the Mount of Olives. Weeping and praying. Anyone else we know that finds themselves in the Mount of Olives in a time of weeping and praying? Absolutely. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, spent the night in communion with his Father, praying and weeping over what was to come as he approached the cross. Now, these leading high priests were helpful, but David kind of left them behind. He said, you know, you don't need to come with me. You stay behind. David is in, in moving away from Jerusalem. He's leaving people behind that will be helpful to him. And these people were all faithful to David. I think this chapter, at least the last part of this chapter, encourages us to understand the importance of true friendship. The people that we're loyal to. The people that 
encourage us, help us, support us. That as David left Jerusalem, there's positive examples that that people were still had his side. That people were still going to remain faithful when it seemed like national popularity was shifting to Absalom. David had a heart for God and expressed that in his loving kindness towards people. And this made people loyal to David. We see the marks of their friendship and their dealings with David. These servants offered true servitude to the king. Zadok and Abiathar became informants. Hushai, who is mentioned, was willing to risk his own safety to defend David in the presence of his enemies. And these people proved to be sheltering trees for their friend in his hour of need. Maybe, you know, just as a word of encouragement to you, if you're that kind of friend, be encouraged that you're able to be a life-giving support to those around you. You know who your true friends are, right? When you walk through the valleys, when you're in the trenches, when your world seems to be falling apart. Who are the people that stay by your side? Thank God for those people. Praise God for those people. In chapter 16, as David is fleeing, there's still some more attention in all of the players around David. We're reintroduced to Ziba. Ziba was one of the servants of Saul's house. And we, we were introduced to him earlier, I, I believe it's in chapter 8 or 9, when... Um, David is making mention, is there anyone left in Saul's house? And Ziba was someone that was involved with Mephibosheth coming back. And Mephibosheth was the child at age five that in a hurry when Saul was uh, killed in battle, um, he was carried away by the maidservant and dropped and he became lame or crippled. And for the rest of his life, he, he was not able to move around. And so David showed kindness to Mephibosheth and treated him like a son, invited him to his table to enjoy fellowship. And he basically put Ziba under his charge. And, and Ziba and his family was going to uh, care for the affairs of Mephibosheth in the land. And so at this point, as David is running off, we read that as he passed a little beyond the summit, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of saddled donkeys and on them were 200 loaves of bread. So he basically comes with like a refuel wagon, right, for David and all the people that leave. And he says, like the king's like, okay, why do you have these? And Ziba says, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride and so on and so on. The king said, where's your master's son? Mephibosheth. And Ziba said to the king, behold, he is staying in Jerusalem for he said today, the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. Fast forward to chapters 18 and 19, that is not true. Mephibosheth did not stay behind for those reasons. And so it's interesting that Ziba is probably posturing himself to be on David's side so that when David comes back to power, David will then turn to Mephibosheth and say, get out and give everything that was his to Ziba. And so there's a lot of intrigue there. What's interesting is that David believes his report, but David doesn't get all the facts before he makes that decision. And so David is fleeing. In verses 5 and following, just imagine David and these mighty men of valor following David, running from Absalom. And along the way, they came to Behurim. Behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came. So just imagine the frustration already that David feels in fleeing from his son, who's taking his throne. And along the way, they come across this man, Shammai, who is noted to be of the house of Saul. What does that indicate to us? He's loyal to King Saul. And he has a grudge. 
he's frustrated that David is king. And the king that he thinks that should be king is no longer alive. And he blames David for Saul's demise. And so what does Shammai do? He's uttering cursing. He's throwing stones at David. Like he's just harassing him the whole way. Can you imagine, right? David and his band is leaving. And here's this guy. You're a jerk. You're terrible. You're worthless. No one should follow you. It's your fault that Saul's dead. Like all along the way. And I'm just being pleasant, right? Because we're live streaming this. I got to keep it PG, right? (laughs) But like, like honestly, this is not, this is not just a slight critique. Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned and the Lord has given the kingdom into your hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil for you are a man of bloodshed. And so David doesn't respond and say to like one of his generals, hey, go get him off with his head. What does David say? Well, David responds, And he says in verse 11, behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite, let him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. What does David do in internalizing this critique that this man who thinks he's harassing David over Saul says? David thinks what he's really saying is what is true about me and Uriah. What I did to Uriah and the trouble that is going to follow me based on the consequences of my actions. Bloodshed has followed David. David wasn't responsible for Saul's demise. That's very clear at the end of 1 Samuel. David isn't frustrated about that. David is carrying the weight of the consequences of his decisions that he made with Bathsheba and Uriah. And basically he says, let him alone and may God be merciful to me. He's continuing to trust God through this process. And so we see at the end of the chapter, Absalom enters Jerusalem, the king's city. Ahithophel, one of David's counselors, is with him. And it came about the Hushai, the Archite, that was the, the loyal friend of David that was left behind that wanted to go with David. He's planted as basically a spy. He comes. He comes to Absalom and he says, long live the king, long live the king. He's thinking long live King David. Right? He's not, he's not embellishing for Absalom. What he's saying is true to him. But Absalom doesn't understand that. Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? Then Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord, this people, and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Besides whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son as I've served in your father's presence? So I will be in your presence. Then Absalom said to Hithophel, give your advice. Ahithophel is a close counselor. He's like, okay, now it's time. We're in Jerusalem. What's the next thing I should do? Ahithophel says, here's the next thing you should do. Go sleep with your father's concubines in public, right? Rooftop. Let everyone know that this is what you did. Why? Because in the culture at that time, when a king would go in and conquer a new land, one of the signs of his posterity, of his presence, of his power, is that he would sleep with the deposed king's family. This is also a consequence of David's sin. If you remember, one of the consequences was that his wives would be given over. This is all coming out to play. The advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, verse 23, was as if one inquired of the word of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel regarding by 
regarded by both David and Absalom. So when he spoke, people were like, yeah, you got to listen. Like this is coming from, it feels like God himself. So Absalom goes forward. Chapter 17. Furthermore, Ahithophel says, here's the next thing you should do, David. Send 12,000 men, chase after David. You'll find him, you'll capture him and let me kill him. Ahithophel wants David's head. And this, if this is the same Ahithophel that is the grandfather of Bathsheba, you can understand why. But at that moment, Absalom then pauses. In verse 5, we read, Then Absalom said, Now call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. So now you have this counselor brought in. And what is his advice? So Hushai said to Absalom, this time the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good. Moreover, Hushai said, you know your father and his men. Basically what he's saying, you know your dad. He's a mighty man of valor. He was a great warrior and fleeing from Saul. He was able to protect himself. He was able to inflict serious damage against Saul's armies and guard himself. And, and you know, as they're fleeing, even though they're small in numbers, where did they go? They're probably up in the hills in the caves hiding, ready to set a trap. And if you go towards them, they're going to set the trap. And that will be bad for you. That will weaken your position as king. So what is Hushai's advice? He says to Absalom, you need to go with them in battle as a sign of strength. Verse 14, then Absalom and all the men of Israel said the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. So that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. God used Hushai's advice to be Absalom's downfall. God's providence and sovereignty in working out his plan to restore his chosen anointed one comes through this man. And so we read that Hushai sends out a warning, sends out um, Zadok and Abiathar, the high priests that stay behind, go and tell David the plan that is to come. And we read that David made it to Mahinam, which is on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And he's waiting there. He's camped down there. Absalom is assembling his army on the western side of the Jordan. David is on the eastern side of the Jordan. And we read in chapter 18 that there's, this is all going to come to a point of contention. David numbered the people who were with him, verse 1, over them, commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David's loyalty kept growing. People were joining his cause to stand with the king. David sent the people out, one-third under Joab, one-third under Abishai, and one-third under Ittai. And the king said to the people, I myself will surely go out with you also. But the people said, you should no, not go out. For if we indeed flee, they will not care about us. Even if half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, now it is better that you, are, you be ready to help us from the city. Basically, he's like, I'm going to go out to war with you. And his fellow soldiers are like, nope, stay behind. You're worth more than us. We'll go fight the battle. You stay here. You're a better help here. And David says, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate and all the people went out by hundreds and thousands. The king charged Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. This is his charge. You're going to go out to battle. When you come upon my son, keep him alive. Don't kill Absalom. No matter what he's done, don't kill him. So what happens? 
Well, chapter 18 indicates that when they go to battle, they're in a very dense forestry kind of place in Israel. We're not sure exactly where it is, uh, but it's a very thick forest. In fact, we know from the text that the forest is so thick that the forest itself devours people in the battle. 20,000 men from Israel are defeated in this battle. Absalom is caught, not by the armies, but by the thick of his hair. Do you remember the description about Absalom earlier when he was great in appearance? He had a lot of thick hair that he would cut that weighed 200 shekels. His own demise was his own hair. That's why I don't have hair. I don't want to get caught in anything. So here's the thing, right? Absalom is stuck in this tree, hanging. News gets back to Joab, one of David's generals. And Joab doesn't always have the best track record. We're gonna, you read about him in 1 Kings. He's executed for his disobedience. So Joab gets news that Absalom is hanging from the tree and he goes to him and he kills him with the spear. And his reasoning is, well, if we keep him alive, everyone's going to be frustrated in Israel. And, you know, you can't keep a treacherous person around that is going to try to usurp the king's throne. So we've got to take care of this. And the chapter ends with the news coming back to David. And it's kind of strange how it comes back because two messengers are sent, one that is a foreigner, one that isn't a foreigner. And basically David sees the first messenger come and he says, okay, there's victory. And he's like, okay, there's victory. And because there's only one messenger, all the news is good. But then he sees the second messenger come and he's like, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't good because now more information is coming. And he presses him and he says, okay, how is Absalom? And he's like, Absalom's dead. And the chapter ends with David in great mourning. Verse 33 says that he was deeply moved and went to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. We made it. We're not done yet. Because when you start thinking about this, the contrast between David and Absalom and what's going on in this whole situation, what we need to understand is from David's perspective, it is evident to see that God is a God who restores. By His grace, God can break the chain that can seriously disrupt the world around us. God is a God who restores. He's gracious towards those who fear him. David did not have to raise a sword against his own son. David was trying to trust God and and leaving and saying, in some way I know I'm going to return. Now David carried the scars of disobedience as sin brings dysfunction, but David remained faithful. And there's a lot more that is said about that in those chapters that I would encourage you to read on your own. But this passage not only highlights the value of following the Lord through obedience, it also contrasts what exists when a person trusts his own own self in with trusting God. Absalom trusted himself. His own wisdom, his own looks, the the way that he heard the crowds and he was like, oh, this sounds really good. So may we be challenged that we don't listen to the things on the outside. But we listen to God and his word as we seek to honor him. It may lead to turmoil and strife. David had turmoil and strife. A lot of it was self-inflicted, but he kept trusting God and there were still problems. There were still consequences. There were still trials, but David trusted God because the Lord promises his good for those who seek him. And we find root for this 
in the words of Jesus. I don't know if this is providential, but we're not having our 11 a.m. salt session. And I was talking with Steve today or this week in preparation. And um, Steve said, you know, this week we're going to be talking about the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. If you turn to Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus is teaching the crowds of what it means to be a child of the kingdom, one who follows the words of God and believes the words of God, we know that to be a child of the kingdom of God means that you're going to live a life that is countercultural to the world around you. People are going to look at you and they're going to be like, you are out of your mind. You must be crazy for thinking that way, living that way, believing that way. Because listen to what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed, happy are Content are blessed by God are those that do not engage the chaos around them. David is not engaging the chaos around him. David was trusting God in this season of his life. And I would encourage you as people who follow the true king, the living king, King Jesus, that you learn from David's example in this season of his life. That you don't engage the chaos and exact revenge for wrongs that are given. But that you lean into the promises of God and believe that as a citizen of the child of heaven, of the kingdom, of blood-bought people that belong to Jesus, that you would know by faith that you are the most blessed when you do not repay evil for evil. When you do not shout back when an accusation is thrown your way. And that kind of behavior that Jesus indicates shows what it means to be a child of the kingdom is so different in the world we live in. I believe if Jesus lived and said these words in the 21st century like we do today, he would say, blessed are those who stay off of social media and feel like they have a platform to say whatever they want to say because you can type it and hit send and walk away from it. Be a peacemaker. Trust God when you're persecuted and rejoice and be glad because the reward that is coming is so much better than what we have today. Let's pray.